everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, May 16th, 2022. Here in Israel, it's dark, so it's already the 15th of the year. 5782. I wasn't with you last week. I know that you guys, I don't know how you managed without me, but it, I was so busy that I couldn't do a podcast last week, which tells you something because I really, really try and uh, be consistent with this. But I was um, I was in the States. I spoke in Miami. I think I talked to you about that. And then I went up to Englewood and uh, spoke there over Shabbat for One Israel Fund. Really successful. Came home uh, like lovely people everywhere and even swam in 44 degrees Fahrenheit weather because I, w- I needed to swim and there was an outdoor pool and it was freezing, but I needed to swim. And it was my best time ever because I was moving so fast because I thought it would freeze in place if I didn't keep moving. So that was a little wild. Um, came back here m- last Monday morning. Tuesday morning was already on a bus. Been guiding for Momentum, which I've talked about before. It's kind of like birthright for moms. Amazing organization, amazing women. Been all over the place, was up on Masada today, where it was 44 degrees centigrade, not Fahrenheit. So that seems to be my number in all kinds of different ways. But I'm really excited tonight to be hosting Micah Smith, who I've known for a long time, actually known his wife for even longer, because she's really good friends with one of my daughters. And like following him professionally, super proud of where he's at. And just coming out with a new film uh, of his own called Exodus 91. So, Micah, thank you so much for joining me here on Rejuvenation. It's a pleasure to be here. What's Exodus 91? Exodus 91, in its most basic form, I would say, is about the diplomatic maneuvers behind the 1991 airlift of Ethiopian Jews from Addis Ababa to Israel. At the time, there was a civil war going on in Addis Ababa, in Ethiopia, um, and uh, and 15,000 Ethiopian Jews had um, congregated in the capital and were awaiting to immigrate to Israel, except that the uh, dictator of Ethiopia at the time was essentially holding them hostage, trying to get money or weapons out of the Israelis and Americans. Um, that was not something the Israelis or Americans were willing to do. So there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of uh, doublespeak and uh, diplomacy going on. And the film follows the Israeli ambassador to Ethiopia, Asher Naim, uh, as he navigates this world. Mm -hmm. So now I remember when this happened, this was also called Operation Solomon. Yes. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So I remember because I had just given birth to my fifth child, to my Nama. Her birthday was just now, May 14th, and she was born in 91. And I'm in the hospital, like following all this stuff going on. And it was like super exciting and super nerve wracking. Of course, then we didn't know all the background. And really up until now, I mean, we dribs and drabs came out over the years of what was going on, including the fact that I think the most people that were ever on whatever transport plane they were on was they set a record because they were all so slight and so slim that like they just packed them all in, right? Yeah, Something they like also, that? Yeah, they, uh, some of the planes, they removed all the seats and just put everyone on. I mean, they were using 747s. They were using cargo planes. Um, actually, when people watch the trailer for the movie, the trailer includes footage of, um, of people on a plane in seats. And everyone is so used to seeing the images of of, uh, Ethiopian Jews on the floor of the aircraft, they think that there's a mistake in the footage. But it's 
it is archival footage. It's from that. that. Okay. I remember that hearing there were, ba- and I was connecting to this, there were babies born on route, mm-hmm. a couple right, of babies yeah. born. And I was really connecting to that because here I had just had a baby in a beautiful Jerusalem hospital, you know, with all the comforts of however comfortable you're going to be after you have a baby. But I was in a, you know, a, a good setting with medical care and hearing about what's going on here. But tell us about the film. Like you have, it, it's, it's a documentary or it's so you had actors film, how'd you do this the film is a hybrid of documentary and what we call narrative or scripted film uh it stars several um israeli film and theater stars including yoram toledano and shai ferdo um as well as others and um so we did 15 days of narrative scripted filming uh, about, I would say, 80% of the movie is is like that. But there are also woven throughout documentary interviews uh, with people who were there, as well as um, experts. And a good amount of archival footage is used as well. So the movie really moves quite fluidly through these different worlds, interviews, voiceover, um, and as well as acting and and archival footage, it's a very very unique project. Mm-hmm. That, so that's not a normal way to make a film. Usually, it's like one or the other. Usually, it's one or the other. We are seeing more and more of these hybrid types of pieces nowadays. I think you can see them on Netflix and other places. What what I think is unique in our film is that we actually break the fourth wall quite frequently, and we acknowledge the the storytelling that we're using, we're acknowledging the modes of storytelling and we're, we're not just weaving documentary and narrative together, but we're talking about the relationship between those two mediums. I'm, I'm, I think that when I first approached this project, what struck me most was the extent to which storytelling is an essential part of, of this story of Israel and the Ethiopian Jews. Um, certainly for the Jewish people, storytelling is a, is a, a central part of our existence. We always say we're the people of the book, but really we're, we're the people of the story. And, and I think a big part of the story of the Ethiopian Jews and their coming to Israel and the, and the trials and tribulations in doing so was about these two distinct or very separate versions of Judaism with with more than anything, very distinct narratives, learning about each other's narratives and finding how they can work together to reunite into a single story. And I think that only once we were able to find a way to unite these stories, to understand how their story and our story were one story, that's when Israel was really able to bring them in and uh, and make these airlifts happen. So when you talk about two different narratives in terms of the Judaism, you're talking about a doubt that the Ethiopian Jews were really Jews and that had to be clarified? So, yeah, I would say first and foremost, I would say that we have a very strong narrative going from uh, the, the, well, from the Bible up until the present. 
the Ethiopian narrative, their story was different. They didn't have the second temple. They didn't have um, uh, all of the things that happen after that. They didn't have the Talmud. They didn't. So, so their whole, they didn't, they didn't get exiled again. They didn't go to Spain. They didn't go to Europe. They didn't. Yeah. So, so that really our narratives were quite distinct. And as a result, there was in Israel at the time, especially in the, in the sixties and seventies and, um, and, and continuing into the eighties, there was a doubt within the Ashkenazi establishment as to whether or not these, uh, the Ethiopian Jews were really Jewish. And that was a doubt, which was very, very hard for the Ethiopian community. They went through a lot of struggles. And I think that when we look at it through the lens, uh, of our, modern sensibilities, um, certainly within liberal circles, immediately you're struck by the power dynamics of an Ashkenazi European establishment and an African group. Um, And whether or not we uh, want to get into those politics, it is the politics of our time. And I think something that this movie does is is not turn away from that and not shy away from it, but say, what's going on here? What are the power dynamics? How, how are people relating to each other? And, and whether or not it's true that there is discrimination or racism, how are people experiencing those issues? And what, what I was excited about was that our main character in the movie is actually neither Ashkenazi nor Ethiopian. He's a Mizrahi Jew. He's from Libya. Uh, and he is actually one of the few Mizrahi Jews who are working in the foreign ministry at the time. And he had, as if you know Israeli history, you know that it's not just a story of uh, black and white. Uh, we've had many groups that immigrate, and every group that immigrates has their struggles and struggles against uh, the establishment, so to speak, or the established community and power dynamics. And so he is somebody who is not in these, I think, I guess I would say we're so used to looking at the world as binary, especially in the U.S., uh, this black and white mentality. And one of the things that I love about Israel is that we are so used to the gradations. We're so used to the, to the complex palette of our society in Israel. And the Mizrahi community represent that. They are, we're not black and white. We're, we're mixed together. But we still do have politics between these communities, and it's something that we have to address. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's interesting what you say, because, look, one of the things that we speak about in Israel with not a little bit of pride is that Israel is the only country that brought black people in. I mean, the Ethiopian Jews are black, not to be slaves, Right. When Israel is accused of all kinds of racism and all kinds of other things like that, it's well, hello. You know, we did do that. We're far from being perfect. But compared to a whole lot of other countries, we have nothing to be ashamed of on this score. But but it is interesting what you say, because I I point out to people who come here that opposed to the narrative that Israel is this rich, white Jewish country, we're actually not a white country at all. And most of the people here aren't even close to rich. Um, So, uh, you know, we are because of the forced um, uh, exile of the Jews, as you said, of Libya and of Algeria and really North Africa and the Arab world 
close to a million Jews get thrown out of their homes in the 1950s. So the early establishment of the state of Israel did intend for it to be some kind of like Jewish European enclave uh, out here in the Middle East. And then through a confluence of quite a few events, one, of course, being the Holocaust, which took away six potential, six million potential Ashkenazi uh, immigrants, Israel became really very much a Middle Eastern country. And when you walk around here, you really feel it. Um, you see, like you said, the variations of color, the the children, I think the children of the mixed marriages are the most beautiful, you know, um, for sure. And also very helpful to the to the Ashkenazi gene pool, which is not a great one. Um, but so it is much more complicated than people think it is. Absolutely. And um, but but I'm curious, what got you interested in this topic? Wow, that's a really difficult question to answer. I mean, the first really? thing is that I stumbled upon the story of Asher Naim. A lot of what he was discussing, he has a, a, a memoir, which which didn't go very far. But but he, while I was expecting a memoir, which was a triumphant you know story about this incredible experience, uh, it was that, but it was also very aware of the issues very aware of the issues that the immigrants were facing before the, the Aliyah mm-hmm. and very aware of what they faced afterward. Asher Naim actually and his wife started a scholarship fund for Ethiopian Israelis really? to, to university. Wow. But but what I was compelled by was that he was a obviously a very proud Zionist and very proud of what he did, but not afraid to look at the problems, not afraid to look and ask questions mm-hmm. and think about how things could have been better and how they can be better. And that's really what struck me. In addition to that, I think, look, I grew up in Los Angeles. I am aware of the American uh, culture and news. I'm a part of it. And issues of race are are very much relevant to me. They're something I, I think about, I'm concerned about both abroad, both in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in Israel. And I felt like this was a, a, a story through which I could explore those questions and explore those ideas for myself. I think the the last element there was, uh, was my own personal journey. Um, you know, I made Aliyah, let's see here, 17 years ago, I came to Israel. And and I'm a different person now in in some respects. And I think that when you when I when I immigrated to Israel 17 years ago, I was a, uh, you know, an incredibly young, excited idealist. And I am still not uh, I'm still an excited idealist, not quite as young, uh, but (laughs) but um, but but I'm also more aware of the issues we have Mm -hmm. here in Israel, of the struggles that we face as a community that we must address in order to to create a better Israel and a better society and a better Jewish people. And and that for a young idealist, confronting those things at first can be very difficult. We don't like to look at the problems. We don't like to look at the issues. We want to just say everything is great. And this movie, to a large extent, tracks my personal journey confronting these issues and learning, most importantly, how to hold both ideas at the same time. The idea that I love Israel, that I'm proud of Israel, that I care about Israel, and at the same time, be able to hold the idea that there are problems here, there are issues here, there is discrimination here, and these are things that we must work on. And that process was difficult for me, took quite a long time. 
And, and making this movie was a part of my process of being able to get through that and, and think about it and understand it. So th- that's really what brought me to this story. Possibly not a fair question, but do you think you were successful in not just working through your own um, questions, uh, you know, about this and how to sit with sometimes two things that, are, that can be contradictory. I mean, sometimes I compare it because I'm with you totally on this. Um, my Zionism is as strong as anything, but I also realize the flaws here and working to correct them. But just like as a parent, which you are as well, which is you can love your kids unconditionally, it doesn't mean that you're blind to their faults and right. want to fix it because of that love. You want them to be the best that they can be. And the same thing with this country that we hold dear. So while working through this for yourself, and I know this took you quite a few years, um, you think the people who watch this, who perhaps um, are, you know, are not in the same place that you and I are in terms of really being immersed, both having grown up in the United States and so being well aware of Western society and all, all that's going on there and the tensions and also here in Israel with, with many of the similarities, but also many of the differences from the West, um, you think that other people will, you know, was that your intention was to kind of do this for you? Or was your intention is that anybody watching this would be able to kind of confront some of their own um, even discrepancies in thought and be able to, uh, you know, deal with with some of yeah, those I issues think, with themselves? Look, the, the movie raises questions. Uh, it is not it is by far from it, you know, like a, a hit job on the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, it very much holds these two ideas simultaneously. And that's something which is throughout the movie, I worked very, very hard. I mean, I remember having countless discussions uh, with my wife and other people just about the last few moments of the movie, how the sound is mixed at that moment, because it happens to be that the closing of the movie is is a very important part of this um this ability to hold the two ideas simultaneously. But what I, what I've seen from limited screenings of it to other people is that people are getting pride from the movie and people are realizing and recognizing the issues that Israel has today. One of the things that happened while we were writing the movie, while my writer was working on the movie in his apartment in Tel Aviv one night outside of his window was a huge protest of Ethiopian Israelis protesting against discrimination in Israel. Mm-hmm. That had a big impact on him, and it actually ends up making its way into the movie. Really? We actually follow one of our characters to a protest. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about the protests that happened in Israel, and there have been many over the years. Now, uh, a side note there, one of the things that I, I love about this footage of the protests is how many Israeli flags are being waved at the protests, hmm. uh, which is beautiful. These are not protests of hatred of Israel. These are protests of love of uh, uh, and wanting to improve their country and improve their, their situation. But that's a, a side note. But But that is very much a part of the movie. And and it's something that the viewer must confront. There's nothing else you can do but see that there's there's a, a community here which is frustrated and angry, in addition to proud, and we need to figure out how to how to address that. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately the movie doesn't the movie doesn't answer as many questions as it raises. That was my my primary goal was to make people aware of these issues, to make them want to learn more want to explore more. Uh, I've done 
other short pieces on YouTube about this topic. They can, you know, watch the movie and go over there. The film is actually uh, produced as part of uh, Open Door Media, which is a nonprofit organization which produces all sorts of media about Israel and Judaism, podcasts, YouTube videos, films, television, TikTok, Instagram, articles. We have a, a website, jewishunpacked.com. And, uh, and all of that material is packaged with educational curricula and distributed to over a thousand schools around the world. And so this film also will be distributed to those schools with the curricula. So hopefully people will see it, they'll, their interest will be sparked, and they'll want to learn more. So what I think is great is that you're kind of going against the political correctness flow, which is to not... Uh, get people to ask questions. Everybody wants to stay in their little safe place, um, just be fed whatever it is they're fed, and you are throwing up very hard questions, not giving the answers, but challenging people with the questions, which, I mean, in my mind, is also very Jewish. I mean, I think that's something, you know, Yisrael means to struggle with God, and we're constantly having these struggles and, and, you know, going through the questions and trying to perfect ourselves and the world, for that matter. So I think that's hugely important what you're doing, because that's what education is supposed to be about, getting people to think, not getting people to close down, which is all too often the case. Ever since the Bible, our primary Jewish texts go to tremendous lengths to preserve the dissenting opinions. Mm-hmm. The Mishnah, the Talmud, these are books which are rooted in a respect and appreciation, a, a uh, um, uh, giving a um, real respect to multiple opinions. And I think this movie does carry on in that tradition. It very much, you hear both sides, you hear multiple perspectives, you hear people who are angry, people who are proud, people are in the middle, um, and, and I think that that's very important for us to confront. We are certainly in a, in a world right now where we feel more and more siloed and, and, and more and more that complexity is not appreciated. Uh, but I, ultimately, I do believe that everybody, people do want that complexity. They do want that nuance. It's just so hard to get to. The Mm -hmm. way that social media is working, the way the internet is working, it is so, the way the algorithms work, they're not encouraging that complexity and nuance. They're giving people what they want to see, what they're used to seeing. um, And and that's something that we all have to push back against, whether it's for for the sake of Israel or for any of the issues that we're we're facing today, mm-hmm, just for the sake of humanity. But what's interesting about the Ethiopian Jews is they literally, in a plane flight, went from a, a not so advanced African country, shall we say, into a modern country um, without the language skills. I mean, most of them came here speaking Amharic, not speaking Hebrew or English, um, without even many of the understanding of of how a modern world lives. Um, From my visits and my conversations and taking people to Ethiopian communities over the years, one of the things that comes up is how it also kind of flipped. They they may still have more of a patrilineal society, more of a traditional kind of society. And suddenly the power was flipped because the parents couldn't speak Hebrew. The kids learned it faster. So suddenly you have the kids translating the electric bill and translating the gas bill and going shopping. And a lot of that kind of hierarchical power structure within the family broke down. 
Um, and with it, you know, a whole lot of other things. And it happened very quickly. There really wasn't a period of adjustment. Although just this last week, I went to a place I'd never been to before with this group of women, um, an Ethiopian center, two beautiful Ethiopian women who came and spoke to us. And some of the mistakes that I think were, were done by the state when it came to some of the Mizrahi or some of the Middle Eastern Jews, which is to kind of stamp out their individual cultures and have everybody just be some kind of glob of Israeli, which didn't happen. It couldn't happen. The powers here were too strong. And I'm so glad that it didn't. Um, but, you know, there's a difference between a melting pot and a multicultural society. And I think that Israel has been fairly successful at being the latter. Um, and one of the things that the Ethiopians said is that they now, instead of being embarrassed about where they came from, they're proud. And there's a lot of things that they feel that have added to Israeli culture. And, uh, and they want people to understand where they came from. They were there for a long, long time. Um, the issue of their Judaism has caused not a little bit of problem. I, I, years ago, I knew somebody, he was actually from a, uh, he's a Kohen. He was from a priest family, um, who are not allowed to marry divorced women. And the Ethiopian girl that he had fallen in love with, they had gone through just like a pro forma conversion because like they were considered Jewish, but there was some kind of a doubt. So just like, but because of that kind of quickie thing, he wasn't going to be allowed to marry her because he was a Kohen. I don't know what happened in the end, but, um, but the, you know, some of these things were pretty deep and pretty serious also in terms of, you know, integrating to Israeli society. So there's, you know, there's been a lot of issues on many different levels. Does your film deal with that aspect at all or It absolutely or not? does. Actually, uh, your viewers can't see, but sitting next to me is uh, a prop from the movie called an Orit. The Orit is the Ethiopian uh, Torah, the Ethiopian Bible, the Ethiopian Jewish Mm-hmm. Uh, Torah. And um, in the movie, uh, Asher visits a kes, which is a, an Ethiopian rabbi, essentially. Right. Religious leader. And, yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the kes brings out this orit to show to Asher. And he says, this is our orit. He says, for thousands of years, we have guarded our religious identity, our religious practices. When we come to Israel, we've been forced to convert. We've been forced to get these, uh, not a second circumcision, but a a symbolic circumcision. Mm -hmm. Um, For the men, just for for the the men. men. Yeah. (laughs) We'll clarify Um, that. Yeah. And he says, you know, what's going to happen to our traditions when we come to Israel? Are we going Mm -hmm. to be allowed to continue to practice the Judaism that we have, that we've held and cherished and protected, guarded all these generations, or or is all that going to be lost and we're going to have to become Ashkenazi Jews, mm-hmm. become Israelis? Um, now, by 1991, all the forced conversions and the and the circumcisions had ended, um, thankfully, uh, but this question of holding on to your cultural heritage. Look, that's that's difficult for any immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's for sure. But coming from from the world that they came from to Israel, they were making a huge cultural leap. And yes, Israel's policy for the most part had been to stamp out uh, a pre-existing culture so that everyone could become Israeli. Now, what that meant at the time for many people was European, right? Um, w- w- and and from the European perspective, that that made sense. They were more advanced from their perspective. They were more 
uh, well off from their perspective. They, mm-hmm. they, you know, they were living their values and they felt like the immigrants should be should be getting up to speed. But uh, from the immigrants perspective, that that wasn't always the case. And it so, was insulting to some degree. It was as insulting. Well. And, yeah. and one of the things, you know, um, I've been um, people often ask about the integration of the Ethiopian community into Israeli society. And uh, uh, recently what I um, heard from um, someone from the Jewish agency was what really we should be asking is about Israeli integration into Ethiopian culture, meaning how is Israel changing and adapting Mm -hmm. around this new community, not how do we change Ethiopians to become more Israeli, but how does Israel get reshaped? How does it evolve because of this new community, which has been introduced? And you said that the Ethiopian community has impacted Israeli culture, and that's 100 percent true. Uh, And I think now more than ever, are we becoming aware of it? But in the in the 80s and 90s and and I think for many years, it wasn't seen that way. It was seen as how are we going to get these people to be more Israeli? And there was a lot of a lot of young Ethiopian Israelis today do not speak Amharic. Their parents right. never spoke to them in Amharic. They were in Amharic. They refused to speak to them in Amharic because they wanted to be 100 percent Israeli. And what's interesting is that many of these Ethiopian Israelis, these young Ethiopian Israelis are starting to take Amharic classes. Hmm. They're starting to go back to Ethiopia and visit Ethiopia. They feel like there's a part of their history and heritage which they were cut off from, and they want to reconnect to that. Uh, they don't want to reconnect to it like, I want to go back to Ethiopia. They don't want to go reconnect to it like rejecting their Israeli identity. or you know. But, but there was 2,000 years of history there. Sure. And, and I think it's a beautiful thing that this community wants to reconnect to that. And that is most definitely something that the movie addresses and explores. It's something that I find fascinating and important and, and worthy of exploration. I think it just made the Israeli mosaic that much more beautiful. And the truth is that their numbers weren't all that great. You know, it wasn't like a quarter of a million people or anything like that. And I do think that they've impacted it. And they've also made us you know, question ourselves, right? Because we would all like to think, oh, you know, I'm not a racist. I'm not judging people by color. And then there are certain situations where you're like, whoa, did I just do that? And I think that that's super healthy, super important, and, you know, super honest at some point. And uh, I really do think that, you know, it's been a beautiful addition to Israeli society. Um, of course, we would like people to come here, you know, not because they have to flee a civil war or any kind of situation like that. But I think we also have to hand it to them because they did not convert over all these years. I I mean, there were many people, there were lots of pressures, especially from Christian missionaries over the years. Um, and they really held on. And, you know, they came here and they thought Jerusalem was still standing. Like they came here and they thought the temple was up. Because as you said earlier in the podcast, their their history, their historical memory ends w- when they're exiled from here and they don't know what's happened in the interim. And... Uh, and then, you know, they came here and for many of them, it was like really a blow because, you know, and for some of them who also, not your particular people, but some of them over other years had literally walked through the Sudan and walked, you know, thousands of miles, losing people all along the way in order to get here. And for them, Jerusalem was 
was in very many beautiful ways, like this real image that for many of us who are a little more jaded, perhaps, um, like, you know, speaking to them, I, I see that, that glimmer of, like, they were just so sure that it was all still here like it was. And I already knew that it wasn't from the minute I can remember remembering everything, right? Just kind of a dream. Um, and there's a, be- there's a beautiful uh, naivete, but also real beautiful simplicity in that, that they brought with them. And uh, that a lot of them have kept, I believe, even once realizing that it, things had changed. Um, you know, that's yeah. still, still out there. Yeah. Jerusalem, Zion has a, a very deep place in, in the yes. community there. And um, uh, uh, hopefully it's something that will... Infuse us and infuse the rest of us, you know, really, who never had that because we always knew from the beginning that it had already been gone. So how do people get to the film, Micah? Is it out? Is it going to be showing in theaters? Is there a website that they can sign up for? How's it working? So as of now, we are submitting to film festivals. Uh, My goal would be that over the course of the next year, we see this film in film festivals all over the world, especially uh, Israeli Jewish film festivals in the States. Almost every state, many cities have these film festivals, and I I would love to be able to bring the movie to those festivals, come myself and speak, bring someone from one of our partner organizations. The Ethiopian National Project is one of our partners on it, amazing organization, have someone from, 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 the, the, from ENP come out and speak at a festival. I think it's a great way to generate conversation, introduce viewers to the, to the story, the issues, the conversation. And, uh, and then after about a year, we'll begin educational distribution which will include both community screenings outside of film festivals and uh, synagogues, uh, temples, churches, anything like that, as well as educational distribution in schools with the educational curricula. It will probably be another six months to a year before the film is actually available to purchase, Mm -hmm. uh, whether on Amazon or otherwise. But what I do encourage everyone to do is to go to our website, exodus91.com, sign up to be on our mailing list if they're interested and we'll keep you informed of when the fest when it's going to be in festivals near you as well as when you can uh, actually download the movie and and watch it or share it with others and my hope is that some of the people who are hearing this are connected to festivals connected to communities and will reach out to us and say hey we want to bring it so that someone can say yeah we want to we we have a local jewish or israeli film festival we'd like to sponsor the film bring you out and and have you bring this story to our community in what language is the film? So I'm very proud. The film is actually in English, Hebrew, and Amharic. Uh, the, my, what I really wanted, especially connected to this idea of preserving cultures, was that I really don't love when I see a movie and people aren't speaking the proper language. It mm-hmm. doesn't feel like, uh, like culturally accurate when, mm-hmm. uh, when everyone is speaking English, even though they're supposed to be Russian, but they're speaking with British accents. So, um, so I wanted to make sure that when people should be speaking English, they're speaking English. When people are speaking Hebrew, they're speaking Hebrew and Amharic. Uh, so all the diplomacy is done in, in, um, in English. There are scenes that take place where characters are moving back and forth fluidly between English and Hebrew. Asher Naim was actually is, uh, was married to uh, an American woman uh, who made Aliyah. And uh, for many of us who live in Israel, we know the way that we weave English yes. and Hebrew fluidly through our conversation. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to, I wanted to bring that to life in his conversations with his wife. Um, and also, there are scenes like where Asher visits the the Kes, the Ethiopian rabbi, where the case wouldn't have known 
English or Hebrew. So I put translators sitting next to both of them and they, they have to have the conversation between them translated in order to be able to dialogue with each other, which I think is both accurate as well as uh, it's so meaningful to see these and two Jews unable yeah. to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Wow. Did you have trouble getting any archival footage? Are there some things that are censored or off limits or whatever you no. asked for you were able to um, get? We're, we, uh, we, the only problem we had getting archival footage is that it can be very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually, because the film is housed by a nonprofit, we're actually still uh, trying to raise some money to help pay for materials. But um, there was an archive, uh, a documentary filmmaker named Micha Shagrir, who was active, an Israeli documentary filmmaker, active for many, many years. He has a huge archive uh, uh, related to the Ethiopian Israelis and almost everything else related to Israeli history while he was alive and active. And when he passed away, he made his entire archive free to everyone. So that was a wonderful resource for us. And then there were also, um, look, there's also the war. So we had to go to um, French news archives, Italian news archives, um, uh, American, the, the Steven Spielberg, um, What's it called? Foundation or something? The, the, there's a, an archive uh, in the name of Steven Spielberg at Hebrew University that had a lot of material that we needed. Um, so it, it was complex and we had a full-time archivist working for a long time finding materials for us. But thankfully, we were able to locate everything we needed. Amazing. And the, the, I, I didn't even talk about it, but what I there's actually a whole other component of this movie, which is totally fascinating. Uh, which is that the antagonist, uh, and I put use it in quotes, the antagonist of the movie was a, a man named Casa Kabede. Casa Kabede was Asher Naim's counterpart on the Ethiopian side, who was really responsible. He was the liaison between the Ethiopian government and the Israelis. And Casa was a very wily figure. He had actually gone to university in Israel. Uh, he spoke Hebrew fluently. He very much knew the Israeli mindset, and he was a uh, vicious uh, diplomat and uh, a formidable foe for Asher. Hmm. And Casa plays a central role in the movie also. I had an opportunity to interview him. We sat down for three hours in Washington, D.C., he and I, just a few months before he passed away. Wow, that's Uh, So we have the last interview with Casa, and I believe it might be one of the only, if not the only interviews he ever gave about his involvement in Operation Solomon, something that he was deeply involved in, that he's tremendously proud of, actually. And it's another element to this issue of narratives, where we actually quite honestly share the Israeli narrative, which wasn't entirely positive about Casa Cabeda, mm-hmm. and Casa's narrative, which wasn't entirely positive about the Israelis. It's very, very exciting to me to be able to tell a story with with so many different characters able to speak and and share their perspectives on this incredible event. Wow. Well, first of all, Micah Smith, kudos to you for pulling all this together. And I can see how passionate you are about this work that really took you years to pull together. And and I'm hoping that we all get a chance to see it. Um, So if you're listening, I'll I'll post the website and you can be in touch with Micah and, you know, get this film into your community. Um, It's only going to, if you want to have a conversation, that is. Yeah. Because it sounds like this is definitely a conversation starter in so many ways. 
Okay. Micah Smith and his new film, Exodus 91. Thank you so much. This was, I learned a lot. And uh, I, I really appreciate you giving your time. Okay. Always All right, everybody. Take care. Eve Harrow on the Land of Israel Network. Rejuvenation. Thanks to Tabitha and to Ben. I will really try not to miss another week, guys. I just I just know how difficult it is for you. But, uh, but it is great to be busy and to be taking people around the land again. It is still, as tired as I am, it's still my favorite thing to do. It's an incredible country. Um, very, very complex, as Micah just reminded us, if we didn't know. And uh, all the more miraculous for that. Couldn't live anywhere else. Take care, everybody. Eve Harrow. Goodbye for now. Josh Haston here, host of Israel Uncensored on the Land of Israel radio network at thelandofisrael.com. Make sure you check out my show every Monday, bringing you the news unfiltered and uncensored information that you are not getting anywhere else, especially not in the mainstream media. Israel Uncensored with Josh Haston on the Land of Israel network at thelandofisrael.com.